Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the episode of Ocho and the Civ podcast. What episode are we up to? 22? I think so. I think I lost count. It's been a hell of a whirlwind over the past couple of weeks. So. A couple just, weeks, a uh, couple months. It just doesn't stop. It just keeps barreling through. Yeah, exactly. So, yeah. So, tonight we wanted to welcome a guest to the program. So, our guest's name is Jason Papa. Uh, Jason, would you like to introduce yourself really quick? Yeah. Um, how's everyone doing? Uh, my name is Jay, Jason, whichever. Um, I've been a teacher, elementary school teacher, um, active in the Bridgeport Education Association, which is the teachers union, which represents Bridgeport teachers, about 1,500 or so of them. And uh, yeah, it's been involved in a lot of different campaigns over the years, fighting for, you know, more school funding or stopping budget cuts, uh, the privatization of schools, uh, keeping an elected board of education in the city of Bridgeport as opposed to an appointed one. Lots of different stuff over the years. Okay, cool. So listen, over the course of the past, you've been involved in the union for how many years? Uh, well, I mean, I've been in the BEA for 18 years, so, so since the, I started, wow, but active, a, active probably for about 14, 13, 14. That's pretty lengthy. So during the 14 years that you've been actively involved, have you, I mean, obviously there's always contractual hurdles. There's always different things that you're looking to kind of overcome. There's always a battle for the union to take on. Have you ever had anything like this, this COVID pandemic that you're trying to sort pieces and try to get the, the pieces in line so you have a safe environment obviously your your members the safety of them is is paramount obviously you're always looking out for them you hear from people that aren't involved in it myself i don't have children but you know people that might have children that are aren't in school anymore they look at just what the statistics are and they say okay people and you're involved in the elementary age right mm-hmm. those those people primarily aren't going to be is there's not going to be a high fatality rate, if you will. They think that it's not really going to be as dangerous per se for the children. But what people don't realize is that those children, if they do get sick, they're going to be bringing this back to their parents. So obviously not just the, the you know, your members, but also the students and also the, the guardians of those students. So, I mean, there's yeah, a lot of, there's a lot of pieces to this puzzle. Yeah, and I think what a lot of other people don't, don't realize too is that, I mean, you being in an inner city school district, there's lots of students that live in multi-generational households. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of folks don't really realize that. And when you're talking about multi-generational households, you're talking about grandparents. Sometimes in cases, even great-grandparents who probably have a lot of comorbidities and are, are relatively, can be relatively frail. So, you know, people only, you know, will say the kids don't really, aren't really at risk for this thing, just like what, what Justin was saying. Um, but they bring it home and can spread it to, a grandparent, a parent, or even a great grandparent for that matter. So how has that impacted you guys? I mean, what's the, what's the challenges associated with this? Yeah. I mean, I think as an educator uh, in a public school system, you're always, you know, you you have to realize that the people you're working with, the children are always, there's always multi, you know, multifaceted things that are happening. So like there's no one person that impacts the child. I'm sure as everyone knows, and you have to be thoughtful of all different parties that are involved in a child's life. So I think that includes the community as, as a whole, right? Like that, inc- that includes, as you, you know, folks already said, multi-generational families, grandparents, aunts, uncles, whoever might live in a house together. And um, as we know, coronavirus has no borders, no boundaries. It spreads to anyone as, you know, fairly easily. 
And uh, I think that is the, you know, outside of our own, as educators, our own teachers, our own safety considerations, there's also just the idea that this is, if this does spread outside of the classes, outside of the schools, outside of, of younger kids, that it could be really lethal. And it could be, you know, a variety of things can happen. You know, people don't know the long-term consequences for some folks uh, to be infected with some type of a virus that is relatively new. Um, a lot of the studies that I've seen, you know, have, you know, I think that was one of the things that came up more recently was that there was a lot of dialogue and discussion in the beginning of the summer and uh, early, you know, in, in, in last spring as well, where people were saying that kids can't get this or kids can't spread this. And then we found that and actually that's not true. Kids can spread it. And in fact, they're really good carriers of it because they're typically asymptomatic. Yeah. So you know, to me, you know, it is a major concern. It's a major consideration, especially in a city like Bridgeport, where you have, uh, as you said, multi-generational families, but you also have people who have had limited access to healthcare, limited access to, um, you know, all sorts of things that put them at uh, a disadvantage. You know, it's, it's no surprise as to why uh, communities of color are being disproportionately impacted by COVID-19. And there was a report, I didn't get a chance to even read it, uh, that just came out in terms of looking at that study, uh, that group of, you know, that segment of the population in Connecticut. And they were, you know, going through it and saying that, uh, you know, people of color, people who live in poverty are disproportionately impacted. And, and again, no, no huge surprise. So a question I, I have for you in terms of what the public education system has done. Um, what have they done to provide protection to teachers and students? Now, I know that there's... They've tried the social distancing thing with trying to really limit the number of desks per classroom, mm -hmm. um, but it, it may not work. Um, for instance, if you only have room for 20 desks in your classroom, we you have 29 students, what are you doing with the other nine students? So what, what exactly ha has, has the system done, first and foremost, to protect you guys and students? What, what kind of equipment have you guys gotten? Or what kind of, uh, uh, have you guys gotten any stipends for your own personal protective equipment? Uh, I mean, health stipends for even hand sanitizer. Have you guys gotten any of that? Well, before you get into the actual, like, what borders you might be putting in mind to to prevent the spread and social distancing aspect. Is there any actually actual testing going on with staff and students or is it just kind of like you're going and you get sick and then you get tested? Is there anything right. like- So any additional things besides what the state offers in terms of the testing facilities that are out there? Right, right. Yeah. Right. Yeah, I mean, that's a huge thing, right? So like a lot of countries, you know, because we're always, you know, Lamont or whoever is always going on and saying, oh, the COVID infection rates are really low in Connecticut. And that might be true, uh, although there's an uptick now um, in terms of uh, numbers compared to other parts in the, of the country. Yeah, sure. But when you look globally, the countries that have reopened schools successfully have had much lower COVID infection rates. Um, and they also have lots of other mitigating things. They have lots more testing that goes on. Uh, I don't actually know what the numbers are in the state of Connecticut in terms of weekly testing. Last time I looked, it was uh, maybe in the thousands, 8,000, 10,000 category. I, I, I could be wrong. Um, but you're now sending back to, to school and to work uh, about half a million kids, about, I don't know, 100,000 school staff, in a population of three and a half million people, you're talking about a sizable, a sizable uh, percentage of the population in the state of Connecticut is now going to be in contact 
with each other in fairly close proximity. So that is a concern, I imagine. Um, so the, the types of things that have come out in terms of protection have really come out from the state's uh, guidance and reopening. So they've said um, that uh, six feet of social distancing when possible or when feasible, uh, and three feet is really the minimum that, or the, the, the real uh, minimum that they have. And a lot of cities, a lot of towns, even the wealthier ones have gone by that, although I'm not sure completely. I do have some friends that work in some of the ring suburbs around Bridgeport who talked about having three foot social distancing as well in their classrooms. So that is not necessarily an inner city thing. I mean, it, it, you know, you have, and I'll get into it maybe later and a few folks ask, but uh, there's definitely problems that are compounded by being an inner city that's been underfunded for so long. But um, the types of PPE we're getting, I'm sure are pretty standard across the state from what I imagine. Uh, we've gotten sanitizer, hand sanitizer, um, some types of wipes. Uh, we've gotten uh, surgical masks, and um, clear shields. So those are the types of things that are provided. Um, if you want anything else, like a real high-end medical grade KN95 or N95 mask, you have to buy that yourself. Um, and those types of things are, I would imagine, are necessary for particular conditions. You know, like we do have uh, students eating lunch and breakfast without masks on in the classroom. So that is a consideration that I think people need to have in mind when they're when they're at work. So so there are I mean, there are, obviously have been we have to acknowledge in the state has acknowledged that there this is a safety issue. So they have tried to tried to come up with mitigating strategies to help. Um, and those the question, I think, you know, really still is to be determined uh, as to whether those things are going to be effective in the long run and for a broader swath of the population in the, in the school communities. And we've already seen a number of schools have COVID uh, positive cases and some of them even shut down across the state. Um, and the way that they shut down, just to speak to your question, the way that they've shut down in terms of should people get testing and whatnot is really not uniform throughout the state. So like there's some cases in which they might shut down a school for a week or two weeks um, and ask people to go get testing. But there's no wide scale testing uh, that's happening right now for the school population and the school community. Uh, even to go back to work, uh, there was no, you know, uh, no requirement to have to get tested even to show back up to work. And I imagine, you know, and for students as well to come back to school, there was no, there was no protocol for that. I don't think they actually have the testing capacity to even to even do that, to be honest with you, in the state. It's interesting. As I, I asked that question because I'm involved. I, I work in the, the, the prison system. So there was an ACL lawsuit that came through where um, there's a number of things that were under it, but it required for the entire inmate population to be tested as well as the staff. I mean, and there's mandatory testing for staff. So I've been tested countless times by now. Um, <laughs> But I ask because if, you, if you're not sure who's bringing, you know, who's coming to work and if they're symptomatic, asymptomatic, whatever the case may be, if you don't know who's coming in there and whether or not they're carriers, really, I mean, that's pretty much a grassroots approach, right? I mean, you kind of get it right from the, right from the base of it. So that, that's why I asked the question. So if there's no testing going on, then, I mean, you're three foot distance. I mean, kids are walking around. They're going, you know, from one desk to another. You're not strapping them in and that's where they are for the duration of the day. Yeah, I mean, you know, I mean, I don't know what it's what happens in other places and what happens in the class, you know, but like, yeah, I mean, older kids are pretty good at staying in one spot. I mean, it's hard, obviously, for mm -hmm. anyone, I mean, even adults to stay in one spot, as you all know. 
uh, or I imagine you, you know, I, I can't sit in one spot for hours on end. Personally. I can't sit in a place for an uh, hour. Yeah. Yeah. So we take like breaks, things like that, mask breaks, go outside, stretch, things like that. So that, that does help in that situation. Uh, but yeah, I mean, asymptomatic spreads a huge thing. Like I have a cousin whose uh, husband's a CO uh, and uh, is a corrections officer and he had COVID, didn't know, brought it home, got my cousin sick. I mean, she's fine now, but you know, and he's constantly exposed to it. And now from what I've been yeah. hearing, you can get it a second time even, which is, you know, kind of scary that <laughs> the possibility and that that might be uh, something as well. So, yeah, I mean, the, the, the not testing asymptomatic. So, I mean, like in other places, they've used strategies like they're just testing uh, percentages of, of staff or percentages of, you know, population, student population or inmates in prisons or whatever. And then from that, they're able to gauge kind of what the spread is like and where it is. There's also been a lot of the discussion around the wastewater sewage uh, treat the sewage testing. I don't know a lot about it, but I'd imagine that's something they might be able to do as well. But that yeah, was, that was something that that was looked at early on in terms of, of the virus potentially spreading through like public water systems or public sewer systems and things of that nature. Not really sure what the implications are for that. Yeah. I think a lot of people kind of get a little a little too focused on the more uh, obscure ways that the virus may, may spread. I think the main, the main way is really uh, either droplet or air, the airborne route. Um, but yeah, so I, yeah, that, that was something that was done for a while. There was something about that, not, not to go off on, on a tangent, but uh, Spain put out a, a, or there was a research article that came out of Spain recently that said that, they found resemblings of this particular coronavirus, or at least uh, DNA that's similar to it, uh, back in in uh, either in Madrid or Barcelona in March of 2019. Oh wow! Yeah. So thoughts are that this has probably been circulating for a lot longer than we all think. It's just that it finally came to a head probably December 2019. Yeah. You know, I mean, so there's very, a lot of very interesting people. Yeah, I mean, we've all speculated this has already run through the school system uh, yeah. in in January and February, mm-hmm. you know, and, and so yeah, I mean, we you know, and we've we've known people who right before the shutdown in March of the schools, uh, you know, right afterward actually that that weekend afterward, we knew people who were testing positive for COVID, and I think that was just the first time they really had any kind of tests available. But I'm you know, if you look at the spikes in April. Uh, late March, April into May, when it started coming down, I mean, you have to realize, you know, I, I, I would have to imagine there were people who were infected that led to that huge surge um, yeah. in April and May. So and just people didn't know about it. Well, I mean, look at the images just that you were seeing. Around so that what time additional of, things are? In- see, this one of the things was Zoom. Yeah. gets backed up and then next thing you know everybody's talking at once now one of the things i was going to say i mean you were mentioning like through like may uh, march and april where everything was kind of at the apex if you will i mean just look at the images that you were seeing on the news i mean new york city was being inundated i mean and then you, you see that in different parts of the country and you don't really see those images so much anymore but i mean just that that was the time. I mean, that's why everybody it just, I don't know, it makes you wonder like how it just exploded through the population. And if that was, I mean, yeah, you're going to see, especially I think with, with kids going back to school, you're going to see that spreading again, just because yeah. people are going to be more exposed to it. Yeah. I mean, you're seeing it in the colleges now. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, it doesn't help that, that they're all having frat parties, just, which is just absolutely idiotic <laughs> as far as I'm concerned. It just doesn't make any sense. 
it's like no brains. You're in college, but no brains whatsoever. It's, it's, it's insanity. But the, the question I started alluding to is, so what additional things are needed to help teachers really do their jobs effectively uh, regarding this? So I know, you know, technology has really come into play in terms of video conferences like this for kids that are doing remote learning. Would it help to really have all the kids do remote learning? Is that feasible? Um, I know a lot of people are like, oh, well, kids need to socialize and all that other mm -hmm. stuff. But realistically, if they're not even talking in the classrooms because they're afraid to take their masks off, how much socialization are they actually having versus if they were just home and they could do the same thing <clears throat> over FaceTime or something like that? No, I mean, that's a great question because, you know, um, mid-summer to late summer, maybe July, July, August, there was the, um, there was a real push to go back to school uh, nationally. And it wasn't, it's a bipartisan push. I mean, it wasn't a Republican or Democrat thing. It was both of them, both parties. Um, and uh, yeah, I mean, what, what is social, I mean, the reality is that as any educator, we would love to have the kids back in person the way that we did it last September, you know, like yeah. they're just, you know, yes, technology is great. It's a fantastic tool. Um, but for, especially for younger learners, like hands-on, yeah. in-person, collaborate, you know, collaborative kind of a classroom where kids are working together learning from each other, helping each other out. There's some, some richness in that that I think cannot be replicated through, yeah. uh, you know, a Zoom, Zoom platform mm -hmm. or anything else. But I think, you know, we have to take stock of the fact that we can't do that right now. So uh, what can we do? And I think yeah. that there's lots of things that we, I mean, part of the issue with kids going back to school is also the necessity for childcare for working parents. And yeah. I think that's, you know, something that people have known or have thought in the back of their minds that public schools are also, you know, fairly inexpensive childcare. I mean, you pay your taxes and you get, you know, some kind of free childcare. You yeah. hope that your kids are somewhere safe and they're learning something and they're doing well. And I think that's all true. Um, I think it's really come into sharper relief now that people have to go back to work and, um, you know, there's nowhere to send their kids that's affordable. I mean, you know, you have these pandemic pods in the wealthier communities that costs, you know, a thousand, you know, thousand dollars a month or more. And they're really just unaffordable for a lot of working parents. Um, can you, can you describe that? I, uh, I guess I'm not too familiar with that. Right. So, I mean, this like, you know, this popped up uh, in the discussion in the return to school with parents who working parents who wanted a type of option to, that was a safer option which would allow their kids to socialize, allow their kids to have an adult that wasn't them who was dedicated to helping them, you know, guide them in whatever learning they were doing. So it might've been something through the school system. It might've been some kind of homeschooling type of situation. And so what they do is they have these extremely small cohorts, maybe five, maybe 10 kids at most. And those people typically have some kind of standards they agree to about keeping each other safe or whatever kinds of socializing they do outside of, um, you know, outside of their own little group or cohort, but, you know, within their broader community and family. And then they pay uh, an adult. Usually it could be a certified teacher. Oftentimes it is. Uh, and uh, they pay them to help. You know, I'm sure they get testing regularly. I don't know the full details of how each one works, but essentially it's a, a real, you know, much more scaled down version of what the public school systems are doing 
but a lot more expensive version of that. So um, it's just not affordable and the state really hasn't provided the funds to, to do things like that. So, yeah. So you might now have, you know, anywhere uh, between 15 and 20 kids in a classroom at three feet, depending on the size of the room, depending, you know, on that still, you know, three feet apart. So, um, so yeah, I mean, it's just a di very different model, but it's, you know, being cost prohibitive for working, working parents. Do you think kids are absorbing as much um, from the, the Zoom learning, if you will? Or, or, I mean, it's great that COVID has waited until we had the technology like FaceTime and Skype and, and Zoom before it reared its ugly head. But I mean, it, obviously nothing's going to come close to the actually what, you know, face-to-face -face learning is obviously what's going to trump all of this. Um, but do you think that kids are, are actually absorbing everything from from this i mean without being able to have that interaction if they have a question to be able to just simply raise their hand and ask it or or right. i mean i know you're speaking I'm, I'm not a teacher but i've given some some classes where you could kind of catch little johnny if he's not paying attention and kind of chin check him with a question and, and get him back uh, in uh, you know? right yeah no it's a great question um you know i was looking at pictures from the 1918 spanish uh influenza the spanish flu that came through um and you know i was looking at pictures from you know what people were doing in terms of education then and they were having you know outdoor classes small outdoor classes underneath tents and I thought that was really interesting because I think that's something that we could probably could have done or thought through here as well, you know, like open air, uh, you know, having, you know, an open air and, and good ventilation is really a huge piece of, of stopping the spread of the coronavirus and most, you know, viral infections. So, and as you said earlier, you know, this, we realize this is most likely transmitted through aerosolized particles and you're inha inhaling them. So that would have been a great solution as well um but yeah i mean i think you know when you add a layer of technology uh and a computer screen in front of somebody's face it's really sometimes it's very challenging to see what exactly you're doing behind that screen or what a kid's doing behind that screen so you know for me personally i've been teaching for 18 years the younger grades these kids kids this age um i find that you know actually going up to them and peeking over their shoulder or sitting down right next to them and trying to help them. I mean, those are the kinds of very personal types of touches that I think you can't do right now, right? Like sitting there, looking a kid in the eye, trying to figure out what's going on, trying to figure out what they need in order to help them. Um, it's just, I mean, you can do that to some extent, but not as deep and rich, I think, as you'd be able to do under under normal circumstances. And I think the learning does suffer because of that. That's my opinion. Yeah. Yeah. It just you know, I the the idea of of having these open air tents, uh, like what what we did back in 1918. Um, Similar to that, but kind of like what what. So I, I I've worked in healthcare for. 15 years now, if you include my, my fellowship that I did in, and actually in infectious diseases, when we have a patient with a communicable illness, like say tuberculosis, where it's basically airborne, um, or droplet actually, sorry. Um, hospital rooms are equipped with negative pressure, uh, where the doors are closed. There's basically a fan on the room. So you, it acts like a vacuum and the air circulates where it gets exhausted to the outside, to the atmosphere. And there, the, the actual, the actual uh, organism that's stuck in that droplet will actually be killed by sunlight very easily. 
Um, so you don't have to really worry about spread to the outside world. Let's put it that way. Most pathogens die by, by with ultraviolet radiation. But the thing that blows my mind is why can't we do that in public schools? I mean, it's the year 2020 and there's a lot of public schools that don't even have air conditioning in them yet. It just absolutely blows my mind that in today's day and age, we haven't dedicated enough money to the public education system to account for something like this. It just doesn't make any sense to me whatsoever. Yeah, I mean, if I could speak to that, you know, I think the public education system, uh, especially in inner cities, but everywhere, there's been an assault nationally on public education. You know, there's, there's really been this idea that, you know, first of all, public schools are are funded by local property taxes in the main, I mean, mainly. Um, and then, so if you have a wealthy town with a bigger tax base, your schools are going to be funded better. Um, and then the cities, you know, typically get something in the order in Connecticut, something in the order of 75% of their funding from the state of Connecticut. So because the operating budgets are so big and a lot of these cities have lots of properties that are not taxable, uh, either they're brownfield sites or they're owned by churches or by uh, universities like Yale in New Haven or their government, you know, their, their government properties or whatever. Um, and that's a real big problem uh, because you have, a, you know, 160 different towns and cities uh, in the state of Connecticut and um, they all have a very different way that they go about doing their, you know, some elements of their education system. So, in the inner cities, there's been the acknowledgement, I think, by some folks who are wealthier than me uh, and, you know, wealthier than people I know who say, you know, we can donate things, we can give charity, but we really do not want to raise taxes in order to fund these types of programs. And if that's the best they can do, then that's the best they can do. And you know, in 2011, 12, 13, and even earlier than that in other, country, in other states in the United States, there's been an assault on public education to try to privatize it. And that's to, you know, my mind to lower some of the quality of education, also to bust, bust teachers unions, uh, lower the pay for staff, uh, and to really bring about what we always call, something called the business model of education, a corporate model for education. And that's been resisted. I don't know if folks know, there's been something called the Red State Revolt, all of those teacher strikes that happen in West Virginia and Chicago and all Arizona. And that's really been a, a big piece of that is that it's a, a recognition that nationally schools haven't been funded properly. The federal government, the amount of money they contribute is, is fairly minimal to public education. And uh, people are upset with it. You know, these are places where most, the vast majority of kids go to school to learn, to grow, to become the future of society in whatever capacity that is, and they need to be funded properly. So yeah, I mean, to me, like, yes, it is, it's crazy that that hasn't happened yet. Like our schools are not updated. You know, the school I work in, it was built in 1964. And if it's been remodeled since, I'd be, I'd be shocked. Um, you know, I, so yeah, and then there's a lot of schools like that, not just, you know, Yes, in the inner cities, but also I've heard people talk in places like Darien that their schools are not in the best situation. So, you know, it's, it's a bigger problem. Yeah, it just blows my mind. I mean, we, we uh, I'm, I mean, I'm, a, I'm generally speaking more conservative from a political standpoint, and I, I am a registered Republican, although I am thinking about going independent at this point in time. But it pisses me off, too, because generally speaking, I mean, 
Republicans typically have a gripe with the public education system. It just doesn't really make much sense to me because you're not, it's not just money you're throwing away. You're investing it in the future of the country. I mean, if you don't have an educated public, what kind of a future do you have for yourself? It just doesn't make much sense to me at all. I mean, we give billions of dollars every year in foreign aid to other countries that would love to see the country burn from coast to coast. And we're almost there really pretty much by our own doing at this point in time. But um, it just, it, 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 it's, it's just crazy. It, it really is. I mean, it, something as simple as education, just making sure we have quality education just doesn't really make, make much sense. There is somebody, I heard somebody make make an argument that, oh, well, you know, it's not, it's not a, it's not guaranteed in the, in the constitution. So, you know, uh, we should figure out other ways to, to fund uh, public schools. I mean, really? Why, why can't we make it, say, an amendment in the constitution to make a, a right or, or publication or, or public education a right for, for all citizens of the United States? It just doesn't make any sense. Like I said, it's an investment. It's not a complete loss. It's not like we're throwing that money out the window and we're not getting it back. It, it blows my mind that, that we just, we don't put emphasis on that when we really should. That, I mean, that, it's kind of yeah, that, that's my opinion on it. it. It's an interesting point that you make there though, because we have freedom of the press, right? So the media could pretty much write whatever they want, but you don't want a public that's educated enough to kind of question what they might be writing. Yeah. I mean, that's a good point. It's an, it's, I mean, I think that's, that's absolutely true. You know, I think there is that element to it, which is that, you know, if you keep people dumb enough, they don't realize, you know, they, I mean, people do realize things, but yeah, I mean, there's definitely that element to it. I think, I also think it's a bipartisan, it's been a bipartisan project. Like this is not just a Republican uh, wish list of destroying public schools. The Democrats have done their own, their own nasty dirt. This too, um, you know, Obama uh, appointed uh, Arne Duncan as secretary of education under his administration. And his job was to literally go through and to try to privatize school systems. And that they, this program called Race to the Top which basically was a competitive um, grant situation where if you instituted the most, you know, some of the most heinous reforms in your state, we'd dangle some money in front of you and maybe you'd get it. Um, so, I mean, in, in even under Malloy, I mean, we've had Malloy, under Governor Malloy, he instituted a lot of these education reform policies. Cities like Bridgeport have not, I mean, we're one of the most underfunded school districts in the state for a long time. And we've had both Republican and Democrat governors. So, I mean, it's not just one party in my opinion, but I think there's also another truth that is, needs to be uncovered that I think, you know, has been become more into the in people's focal point more recently, which is, you know, that education serves to try to train the next layer of the workforce. So what does that mean in America right now? What is your workforce, right? So you have some really high-end tech, science, you know, types of things that are going on. And then you have a huge service economy. And what do you need? What kind of training, what kind of workers do you need to be trained in a service economy? So like, I agree with both of you, like, yes, going to the idea that education for having good citizens, good democracy is one set of ideas, but I don't think that's necessarily how education works. You know, I think really you're, they're looking to train the next layer of workers. And what does that mean for a place like Bridgeport where, you know, they're looking at these kids, a lot of these kids as, you know, Lex, the next possibly is the next, you know, layer of service employees. And I think that's 
something that needs to be challenged as well, because I certainly know that the kids down in Westport or Greenwich, they're not being looked at the same way. Um, and that might be a radical thought, but I think the idea that education is to be something that now becomes your next uh, stop, stepping stone in your career, even at a young age, is not that far from what the discourse is on public education right now. You know, some of my friends, and I'll stop here, my, some of my friends joke that K-12 education has become one long, pay, one long unpaid internship for corporate America. <laughs> and, you know, there's some element of truth to that. That's an interesting perspective. I never really thought about it that way in regards to you talking about how these kids are being brought up to be basically the next layer of service employees because you don't really, you think of school-aged kids and you don't realize like, yeah, you know, these are, this, this is the next generation. So they have to be trained to, to get ahead. So if they're not going to be given that education, they're not going to be afforded those opportunities to get ahead. So it's interesting, you know, that you make the, the comparison with, with some place like Westport, where, you know, you think of a, you think of a, a company, right? You're going to have the per- people at the top and you're going to have all the people working underneath them. And you're not training, you know, a certain, certain people, if you will, to get up to the top. It's, it's those people that are in those more affluent areas. They're, they're, they're being brought up to be the bosses. They're not brought up to be the workers, nor should they. But at the same token, you know, those, the, those inner city kids or people in, in urban settings, they shouldn't be only given the education that's going to get them up to, you know, maybe middle management, you know, and granted, you know, I mean, going to college obviously is going to, you know, is going to, to, you know, help extend, you know, where they might go in their careers. But if they're not even given an opportunity to get an education to be able to go to a decent school, they're going to be left behind. Yeah, I agree completely. I mean, I think like the idea of America, you know, this is, people may not agree with this, but the idea of America as a meritocracy, I mean, there was that scandal uh, last year with the uh, um, an actress and a couple of wealthy people who were basically, you know, cheating or lying or somehow getting their kids into college. You know, I don't know if you folks followed that at all. What are you talking about? That's the most hilarious story ever. You have the woman from Full House. Aunt, Be- Aunt Becky. Aunt Becky, right. of all people, the, the staple of the Hallmark Channel. <laughs> <laughs> like the star of every feel-good Christmas movie. And what is she doing? She's a lying, cheating, you know what. <laughs> Dude, and the thing is, is even after this whole thing, her kid going to USC, she didn't even go to USC because she was too busy with her modeling career. So she was in New York City doing modeling shoots anyway. <laughs> I think I'd speak... Go ahead, sorry. No, I was going to say, which you could probably argue, you'd probably make more as a model than you would in being in the, in the general workforce. <laughs> well, I mean, eventually those looks fade, unless you're Aunt Becky. My, my, my looks haven't <laughs> faded over the years. No, no, no. They, they've been certainly enhanced. Thank God this is not a visual show. There's no video here. Oh, boy. Well, well Jay, listen, uh, I know it's, it's late um especially since you get up relatively early so um hold on before we before we let you go i have one last question that i I want to touch on so down in in the uh the bridgeport area i I saw recently there was a school that got closed down correct because of an infection it's actually two two schools this happened once what happens you know we reopen and then a couple months later somebody else gets sick and then we do the same thing we shut down we clean and then we kind of just put our nose to the to the, to the, you know, to the ground and start going again? Or how does this work? 
Yeah, I mean, a lot of this is dictated by Governor Lamont. So, I mean, he did two things. One, he created a set of standards like metrics for uh, infection rates and what kind of school model you should have. But the other thing he did was he punted to all of the local school districts and said, hey, figure it out on your own. So he gave like some guiding principles and then the details have to be worked out uh, wherever you look out, wherever you are. So, um, yeah, I mean, the idea of the plan is like exactly that, what you said. We're going to have, you know, there'll be infections. We're going to close those classrooms down, reopen them in 14 days. And keep going if the spread is outside of just a classroom and in broader school community close the school for 14 days excuse me and reopen it over and over and over again until the infection rate gets to be uh and there's some really good pieces people you know people should really check out um that go through uh lamont's in fact you know metrics that he's using to to decide what kind of school model to have but essentially all distance learning can, will not happen unless the infection rate gets to something close to where it was in April last year. So the height of our pandemic is where he's going to decide to close the schools. So, so right now the standard is to close down the school with an infection for two weeks. Right. Okay. So while this two weeks is going on, is it going to be on a model of Zoom classrooms, if you will? or Yeah. So, so I mean, it's they, not completely they, hitting pause and kids aren't learning for those two weeks. Right. I mean, I, I, you know, this is all big question marks. This is a big experiment, right? So like if the teachers are sick, the kids are sick, what are they going to do in those situations? I mean, I guess they would have a sub sit in, uh, something to that effect. I mean, in some schools, uh, one of the schools is only closed for a week. So we're not sure why that actually is the case. One school in Bridgeport is closed for two weeks. I'm not sure why one would be only closed for a week, one for two. I mean, there must be some rationale to it. I don't know. Um, but yeah, overall the, overall, the plan is, it's pretty interesting, pretty wild in my opinion, but. All right. Um, that's all I had for questions. Justin, did you have anything else for, uh, for Jay? No, no, I think uh, we, we touched on a lot. Okay. Jay, any, any Jay, last thanks for, uh, parting words on your, on your behalf? Question, if you were a professional fighter, <laughs> what would your walk-up music be? Oh, geez, that's a great question, because I always think about this in my head, too. I mean, I've had this thought, especially since I was a Mike Tyson fan as a kid. And he, So it, oh, it could be time for some action. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's it, a hard It's really hard. I mean, it changes depending on the situation. Well, I mean, since your last name is Papa, so we're thinking I, we'd like to have you There's back only one possibility. Point, just to see, you know, how, how things are going maybe a few months from now. But you got to have a screen name. So Justin is Ocho. I'm the Civ. I was thinking your screen name can be Jay. I love it when you call me Big Papa. <laughs> yeah, throw your hands in the air. Yeah, that's and then fun. we we can have this as your as your uh, intro music. <laughs> I don't know how long you could let that play. We don't own the own the rights to it. What is it, like 15 seconds? <laughs> I think the audience gets the point. <laughs> yeah, definitely. No, I really Jay, appreciate it. This is a lot of fun. Thanks for yeah, being definitely. a part of it, man. We really appreciate it. And it's I great really to get some insight and in how it actually out. operates and, and hear something from, the, you know, from what's going on in the other side. Yeah. I appreciate it. Thank you, folks. You guys have a good night. All right. Thanks. All right. You too. Be good. Bye-bye. All right. And then there were two. <laughs> Well, it was great to get a get an insight from somebody that's kind of work, you know, working in the environment, and uh, you know, that's a perspective that I think a lot of times the people that have the kids going to school don't think about. Yeah. And it was also really, I mean, what really 
was an eye opener for me. You know, I touched on it when, when he brought it up, that whole perspective about, you know, inner city kids not being given the same quality of education. The thing is, is that, you know, it's tough because we're in this area where there's a lot of talk about, you know, obviously state budgets or, you know, budgets in general, it's, there's been a lot of talk about it, especially since the whole idea, you know, the defund the police and everything came up. And one of the things that I realize from, from my working perspective is that, well, when you start to defund law enforcement, understand that there's going to be other things that kind of, that, that are going to, there's a cause and effect, right? Yeah. So you cause the, the, the cause in this situation would be you're taking money away from, from, you know, funding the police, which in turn, you have less training, which in turn, you're not going to have people that are as qualified um, going into certain situations. So you're going to have more poor outcomes, right? Yeah. So you're not dumping money into education. You're not going to be able to provide the kids with as good of an education as you would be able to. I mean, some people say like you're throwing money at a problem and nothing gets done. But the thing is, sometimes you just need money to purchase the resources to be able to yeah. provide a better education. Yeah, exactly. And I, I think what you're referring to is probably something called like the, the squeeze the balloon effect. You squeeze it in one area and it's going to blow up in another. because that's Right. Not- and the thing is, sadly, in, a, in an urban setting, I mean, there's so much money to go around. I mean, yeah. between, you know, public services and, and, you know, you've got fire departments, you've got police departments, you've got education departments, you have, you know, welfare departments, you have, it, it's just, and, and sadly, in a lot of urban settings, there's just not as much money coming in as there, there is going out. Yeah. And this is, this is the thing that kind of blows my mind about it is that, you know, you have wealthy communities that can afford more things like that for their, for their public education system. So there's, there's a constant progression forward in keeping with the times in terms of, you know, what kind of education is needed for children to kind of get out there and deal with the world at that point in time. Uh, but with, with these inner city school districts, it's, it's just, it's a vicious cycle of not having enough money to fund schools properly. And the kids aren't getting an, as good of an education, I guess you could say, just because resources are limited, not because the, the intent is to give poor education. It's just that they don't have all the resources that they would have in in uh, in more affluent areas, and and because of that, the kids can't potentially reach to the same level as kids would in an affluent school district. Not to say that they can't, but if you were to look at the number of kids in general that would be able to get there, I, I'm being given completely arbitrary numbers. In an affluent school system, maybe it's 75 kids out of 100 end up going to, to college and end up, you know, getting a good job after, after college and things of that nature. Whereas, I don't know, maybe 10 in a hundred kids in an inner schools district uh, are able to do the same thing and get out of that, that cycle of poverty uh, that, that occurs to them. Uh, and again, those numbers are completely arbitrary. I have no, no real evidence to say that, that those are accurate, but you kind of get the point that I'm trying to make. Mm-hmm. Um, it's just, it's sad that, that we don't give more resources than we should. I mean, it's, it's just, it, it's aggravating to be quite honest. Uh, I, I was fortunate enough, even though my parents were uneducated from a foreign country. And by the time I was born, they were living not necessarily in a very affluent town here in Connecticut, but it was decent. Our, edu- our public education wasn't, it wasn't bad at all. I mean, I, I did well for myself. I went on to, to pharmacy school. I work in the pharmaceutical industry at this point, you know, I'm the licensed. Yeah. Licensed. I, you're I, not just I, selling I, pharmaceuticals. That, on the corner. that is, that, that is a good distinction that, that the rest of the audience should, should know about. I am a licensed uh, drug dealer, not an illegal one. Um, 
but I, you know, the fact of the matter is that I had that opportunity to get a good education and to do well for myself. Um, so it's just sad that other kids aren't given that opportunity. It, 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 mm. I'll be honest, it, it really bothers me. It really does. Yeah. I mean, I understand what you're saying. And the thing is, is like, you know, especially in, in today, right? With businesses getting bailed out, I just saw... Um, uh, there's a headline that talks about how the White House backs a $1.5 trillion stimulus, another stimulus. So if we could keep throwing these stimuluses out, right? You have in, a, listen, it goes from both sides. I know you hear White House backs this one. So you're thinking it's very right leaning. Well, think about the last one. You know, it was very left leaning and there was a lot of millions of dollars that were earmarked for different social projects. You know, I mean, we mentioned before, I mean, I know the Kennedy Center got X amount of million dollars and there was a lot, there's a lot of other earmarks in it. My point is, is that how could we say that, you know, I just gave the example of, you know, like if you, if you put the money towards the, uh, the education department, then the police don't have it. If you put it towards the police, then the fire department doesn't have it. You know what I mean? Like you're given X yeah. amount of X amount of funds and they have to be appropriated correctly. So everybody gets a piece of the pie. Well, the thing is, is that when you're able to, to bail out companies and bail out businesses, why can't money go into education? If you have, if you, if we keep, if we're able to keep coming up with money, like we had the payroll protection act, right? Which was great because it kept paychecks going into employees that, that couldn't work otherwise because of the whole coronavirus pandemic and quarantine rules and restrictions and all that. But if we have money to do that, how come on any other day, we don't have money to give to education? I agree. I agree. I, I mean, I if anything, this is, this is really made us, you know, it, it made the government show their hand. Like you got money for all this other shit, but you don't have money to, 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 to one, feed kids better food in school. Number two, provide updated textbooks on a regular basis. Yeah. So history isn't as much, and especially as much as we want to rewrite history, right? Yeah. There's got to be new books that go along with it. Yeah. You know I mean? And granted, I mean, of course, there's always checks and balances, right? There's some areas where, you know, you, you don't need as much money and, and, and so on and so forth. But like when, you know, years ago, there was talks about eliminating the arts, right? And yeah. maybe the arts shouldn't be in school. And now we have magnet schools that are art schools. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's just, it's, 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 it's absolutely crazy. And then we keep hearing these things. Oh, well, we need to get up to the same standards as China and India. What do we give a shit about China and India, to be quite honest? The standards um, of India and China. Yeah, I mean... The if, standards of paying somebody 25 cents an hour to make Nikes so they could be sold for $150? Or more. Those, those standards? Yeah. I mean, it's pretty and, capitalistic, and, if you ask me. And, 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 here's, and here's the thing. If their education systems are so great, why are they coming here for engineering and medicine? Yeah. To, to, work, to work in these areas. Yeah, interesting. You you talk about uh, coming here for education in China. An article that we saw um, earlier this week, I shared with you. Um, individual came. I, where is she from? She's from China. Is she in England? Is that where where she ended up? I believe so. Yeah, I think she did a couple interviews in England. Yeah, it was on a it was on a talk show that almost looked like it. It reminded me that it was like The View. <laughs> yeah, but it, it, that's not what it was called. Yeah, let's see if we can find that. But yeah, find that. Ahead. So basically, um, she went on the record as saying that she worked in the 
uh, Wuhan lab where there, she, her claims is that, you know, going back to earlier conspiracy theories and that this was a man-made virus and she's going on the record and saying that it, uh, that that's actually true. Now this could go twofold. One is because one, is it somebody that's just desperately seeking attention Two, was she actually employed by this, this lab and was she able to get out and seek asylum? Because early reports were that there was numerous employees that did work in this laboratory. They did get out and their records were scrubbed from the databases of this laboratory to make it seem like these people not only didn't work there, but never existed. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So her name is Dr. Li Meng Yen, former researcher at the Hong Kong School of Public Health. And uh, she posted a paper on the open access repository website called Zenote that she claims shows how SARS-CoV-2 could be quote unquote conveniently created in a laboratory setting in six months. So it's a pretty, pretty interesting allegation to be quite honest. Yeah. One thing that I thought that was interesting about the article was that she was saying that somebody without scientific background would able, like once she pointed out what the differences are, it, it, it would be that blatantly obvious that like the layman, like myself, I, I, I don't know how to look at a gene sequence and be able to tell you if it's man-made or not. But the way that she was explaining it was like, now I'll show you the differences. She said that it's a work in progress and it's going to be released. So is she going to be Epstein and, or is she going to be able to, you know, to be able to release these results? I personally think she's going to be Li Ming Yend oh. instead of Epstein. Yeah. Who's he? I think she. She. She? Oh, she's going to, this is who we're talking about. <laughs> oh, you mean the actual person that we're talking about? Who is yeah. that? <laughs> yeah, she, she, she might suffer the same same fate as Epstein, but instead of being being Epstein, she will be Li Ming Yen, unfortunately. But I mean, I, I, I mean, especially if she's not in China anymore. I mean, if she has all this information and she's leaking it out to some government and they're actually paying attention to it, they might want to keep her under wraps, you know? They're going to keep her well, very well protected, especially yeah. if she knows as much about it. I mean, if she knows that much about it, maybe she could hold some kind of key to kind of figuring this whole thing out. Yeah, just it's very, very interesting. I mean, the, the, way, the, the way the article was written, too, it seemed like she and again, I, I, I can't verify or I can't um, confirm nor deny what she's what she's claiming in her science. I mean, I've. I've read hundreds of medical articles over the past 15 years, if not even thousands, to be quite honest, but I couldn't tell you, I, I couldn't validate if her research was legit or not. I, I mean, virology is not my area of expertise, neither is gene se- sequencing of viruses, <clears throat> my area of expertise. So it's a pretty interesting allegation that she comes up with the way the article was written. Um, it, it seems like she, she and her research team may have had a chip on their on their shoulder against the uh, against the Chinese government for whatever reason. They even made allegations that the WHO uh, silenced them in terms of uh, revealing this data and all this other stuff. So it's pretty. I mean, like I said, it's pretty serious allegations. I, I'm I'm not going to say that it's it's bullshit because it may be true. I don't know. Uh, but it's pretty serious, and the implications from that are are pretty bad. <laughs> If, if that's really the case. Absolutely. It's bad. I mean, well, here's, there's two parts to it. I mean, one, well, three, well, if it, it's man-made, that's pretty bad, but I'm sure there's plenty of laboratories throughout the United States that do the same fucking thing. Well, yeah, you're right. And let me, let me be, let me, let me clarify something there. So I, I 
I had a, not a mini debate, but I, I had posted this on, on my own personal Facebook page and I had a little dialogue going back and forth with a few people. Um, now, to be clear, just because it's man-made, it doesn't mean it's quote-unquote weaponized. Okay, right. let's, 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 I, I want to make sure that that's very clear at this point in time. Um, and there, this is the reason why I say that. So oftentimes in, in medicine, not just in the infectious disease specialty of medicine, but in other areas of medicine, um, they will actually get genetic material from one cell line and insert it into another cell line. So to give you an example, there are certain types of insulin that are created where the, the genetic sequence for human insulin from pancreatic islet cells are snipped out of those cells and inserted into E. coli, into a bacteria. And then what happens as the E. coli is basically, as they, they have it in a controlled environment with nutrients and everything, um, as its genome is being replicated, as the cells grow, that genetic sequence for insulin is also being replicated and produced. So then what they do is that they, they purify that, that insulin, they take it from that cell culture, and they purify it, and they basically make insulin that's readily available for human beings. Um, it's, it's actually pretty clever and pretty neat. Um, you can do this with bacteria even when you're talking about looking at, at, uh, at antibiotic susceptibilities or, or antibiotic activity against certain organisms. You can get what are called isogenic strains of bacteria where, say, for instance, you have one particular bacteria that you isolated from a patient and you, you want to control your research. You could take a genetic sequence for a certain mechanism of resistance out of that clinical isolate, that bacteria, and insert it into... Uh, another bacteria, say another another E. coli or a Klebsiella species, and things like that. Um, it, it's it's commonly done. We can manipulate the the genetic material of these rather simple organisms all the time. So, again, you technically they're man made. Let's put it that way, or manipulated by by scientists. Now, the real the intent is the real question here. Now, was the intent for objective research purposes or was it malicious? That's the big difference between the two. If it was malicious, then we have a serious problem on our hands. So that's, that's what the general public really needs to take away from this rather than automatically jump to this, to this conclusion, this is an act of war, we need to start bombing the shit out of China, let's wipe them off the face of the earth, take a step back, <laughs> take a breath. Let's right. not get crazy here. I mean, we have Plum Island here, right? United States, right? And there's a lot of speculation of whether or not Lyme disease in itself came from that island because the first case of it was in Lyme, Connecticut. Mm-hmm. Old Lyme, yeah. Connecticut. Yeah, there's, there's a lot of research that went on there with that particular organism. Right, but that's just one example, right? I mean, that's, I'm just saying that, you know, we do have laboratories, right? And, and then, you know, that's just one and that's localized here. And that's one example of, uh, of, of a disease that escaped. I mean, it's, I mean, it's not 100% guaranteed that that's actually what happened. But on a larger scale, you know, I mean, you have something like this and it just kind of piggybacked on somebody that was leaving work one day. And uh, next yeah. thing you know, they went shopping for a, <coughs> for a bat at their local wet market. And then, you know, they thought they were just picking up some groceries. Next thing you know, they're infecting the entire fucking world. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, so it just, it's, very interesting to, to hear this. Uh, like I said, I, I personally can't, can't validate the research. I'm, it's not my area of expertise, but yeah. 
it, it is an interesting it is an interesting topic to really to explore and and hopefully it was a malicious intent because if it, if it was um that's that could be considered to be an act of war to be quite honest a hundred percent i mean i find it, I, I could be a little speculative in regards to that because where did it originate you know I mean, we still think that China downplayed the numbers. So you think that they want to weaponize something against the rest of the world and they killed God knows how many people of their own, you know, how many of their own citizens? Well, that, that's an interesting point. I mean, when, and this is, I guess this get into, I guess you start segueing, I don't know. Well, if you how sacrificial could it, you be? Well, that's the thing. I mean, if, if you want to segue into, into a, a separate topic, I mean, when you're talking about communist regimes, what have they done over, their, over the past, over the years, especially in the, in the, tw- in the 21st century, yeah, or in, the, in, the, in the 20th century? Mm-hmm. I mean, the, the thought is that about 361 million people throughout the world died at the hands of tyranny directly or indirectly. So we're talking about tyrannical governments, which included communist Russia, communist China, um, that you know, killed millions and millions of people of their own people, by the way, whether by force or by starvation. So, uh, you know, your, your question of, you know, would they sacrifice a lot of their own? Yeah. I wouldn't put it past them. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, this is true. I mean, I've seen some crazy videos, like Chinese, like security footage where who knows where it is somebody just gets tit out and people are just walking by him like the guy he's like kind of writhing in pain a a truck comes by runs the guy over people are just like all right then a van a black van pulls up and people with masks come out or not (laughs) no 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 completely opposite it's crazy it's really crazy i mean it's just a different it's a different world it is. It I mean, is. from country to country, it really is. I mean, and, and yet we have people here thinking that that it's it's uh it's fascist if if you make people wear masks. Yeah, I saw a video today. These these people, these these people, like they're parading around a Target, not wearing masks, and just like cheering about it, how it's their freedom, my body, my choice, right? <laughs> yeah, how ironic. Like, don't you understand? Yeah, exactly. Don't you understand how that works? Like. <sighs> The whole point of the mask isn't that like you think like breathing in like yeah i, I get it this, this, the, the science has been released that wearing a mask doesn't entirely protect you however when you have a mask on and your disgusting droplets aren't exiting your face and going onto the produce that i'm trying to purchase like that's like that's the whole point of it yeah like yeah there was a meme that i saw it was like it was like somebody like peeing their pants or something like that somebody yeah. that was like just peeing you know See that pee's getting everywhere. They're wearing pants. Yeah, it's not going to get everywhere. See now, if you're both wearing pants, nobody's going to get any pee on them. Yeah, exactly. I don't know and why I thing. had to I mean, give that analogy. I don't know why. I well, because I, I think it has to be dumbed down that much for for people to to really start to understand it. And I, I love the the idea of people like, oh, well, you know, this is useless and all this other stuff. But right, it's not. It, but it's not the only layer of protection you're trying to you're trying to use. It's many layers of protection you're trying to utilize to really to really help protect yourself and others from this. So you know, I, the other day I was talking to somebody and I said it's like it's like going to war. You know, if you're going to go into war, you want to wear your helmet, you want to wear your 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 Kevlar vest and and everything else, and you want to try to stay as far away from firefights as you possibly could, or try to take cover from being shot at. You know, to say oh th- this this helmet isn't going to protect me from a, you know, from, from being shot at with a sniper with a high powered rifle. You're right. It's probably not, 
But if you have the helmet and you're behind the barrier, your chance of not getting killed by a sniper is even higher. Right. Put as many um, layers between you. Exactly. And that that's and not only that, but if you're diving behind a car to seek refuge and you bang your head on the floor, it's probably also a good <laughs> idea. Yeah, exactly. And so it's 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 your 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 you're implementing many layers of protection in order for you not to get the virus and not to spread it to others. You know, the vaccine isn't isn't hundred percent foolproof. Yeah. Uh, or it's, it's not 100% guaranteed. Um, wearing a mask is 100% guaranteed. Washing your hands by itself is, isn't 100% guaranteed. Staying away from sick people isn't 100% guaranteed. Um, but if you do all those things, your chance of not getting the virus is much better. Yeah. And that's what, that's what a lot of these, these people don't seem to understand. I don't know why it's hard to understand. Yeah, I was with somebody earlier today and something, I forgot how the conversation came up and it's just something about wearing a mask and he just looked at me. He's like, listen, I don't really believe in the whole thing that wearing a mask is, is stopping it, stopping everything. But people around me feel better. It's not that hard to do. Yeah. And, you know, everybody's just feels safer. And I mean, why not? I mean, it's not like yeah. if the government is trying to make you comply with something, it wouldn't be by getting you to wear a mask. Let's just be honest, because yeah. a year ago to the day, people were worried about facial recognition software and, and surveillance cameras. So now we're telling you to cover your face and you're going to argue against it. I mean, which one is it? Mm -hmm. Exactly. Those are the same people that, that get an iPhone, put it to their face and it magically unlocks it. And they're, they're worried about they're worried about wearing a mask. Yeah, just, exactly. It, Isn't just, that something? Insanity. Huh? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, in other news, Donald Trump jumps on the offer from Joe Rogan uh, to moderate a debate <laughs> between him and Joe, uh, Joe Biden. Yeah. So what do, you, what do you think of that one? I think it would be an interesting scenario. It's never going to happen, but that format would be really great. I mean, I think there is one, number one question to you. Do you think uh -huh. that any of these debates are actually going to happen? I don't know. I that, that's a great question. I don't think they're going to happen in person. If anything, maybe virtually, but that's just, it's a very odd situation. But then again, we're not exactly in a, in a normal world at this point in time. So I guess we'll see what happens. Yeah. The first one is scheduled for the 29th. So in 12 mm. days, mm. Um, I do know that one of the formats typically is a town hall format, but you know what? Let me back this up because there was, did you see the, the video of, uh, of Joe Biden, he was holding the rally, if you want to even call it that. He was in the church. I did not see Dude, that. It no. was it was it was it was creepy. It was really, really creepy. He's wearing a mask, he's stumbling around, he's he's turning his back to the audience while he's talking, he's whispering into a microphone. It's one of the most bizarre things I've ever seen. <laughs> like it really, <laughs> really is. I I encourage you, I'll send you a link so you could post it. Sure. But it's just, it, it's, it's fucking crazy. And there was somebody that asked a question. There was a woman that asked the question and right off the bat, she said, I don't want to ask the question that I was given to ask. Seriously, that's what she said. And then she went into asking whatever question it was that she actually had. But the fact that they actually played, the, she was given a question to ask. So basically the people that take the microphones at these rallies, they're not asking their own original questions. It's completely staged. Oh, yeah, of course. Yeah, of I mean, course why, it is. Of course. Yeah. Why? Why would you want to stumble, or why? Would you, why would you want to make one of these, one of these candidates stumble, in on live television? You know, yeah. I'm, I'm sure each each political party would would not want that to happen.
Well, I mean, it was just a little rally. So the whole thing was going to be, you know, chopped up and, and spliced anyway. But I mean, just the fact that it was just, it was so blatantly obvious where she was just saying, she's like, I don't want to ask the question that you, that I was given to ask. So, yeah. but you know, moving forward, like even if they do get some of these, these debates actually do take place. One of them is a town hall style. So I'm curious mm -hmm. to see how that would go. Yeah. Because then there's a lot of people that are, you know, sitting in this circle that are given questions to ask yeah. by whatever the moderator wanted them to. Or, or just or have, I mean, I, I know that they, they like to have those style, but why not just have a candidate on one age or one candidate on one end of the stage, the candidate on the other end of the stage, your moderator, and then your audience is virtual and that's it. Yeah. Uh, a lot of the, the virtual stuff is, is, kind of entertaining i mean you see some of these rally speeches where they're giving this speech and it's just in the middle of basically an auditorium and there's one camera <laughs> yeah there's a meme about it and I, I didn't get a chance to see it something about a, a beaver on a mountain or something <laughs> i don't know yeah it's just the increasingly bizarre world that we live in unfortunately I, can... I mean it's the times that we live in let me see if i could get it here sure Oh, I guess that's, it's just, it's a beaver that's standing in the middle of a mountain. It sounds like somebody being murdered. It does. It does. But this isn't the, uh, the whole thing. There's one where it's like, it's spliced with another one where it's, I think it might be Kamala Harris and she's speaking in basically an empty room and she's like, you know, she's getting amped up in her speech and she's yelling and there's nobody there. And, it just, and then it cuts to this beaver who there's like nobody around and it's just yelling. Oh, that's great. That's great. Ah, so I mean, increasingly bizarre world. I guess if we're on if we're on that we're on that subject. Um, uh, have you noticed the? I, I know you you typically work overnights, but in the mornings or the days that you're off, have you been up around sunrise in the past week? No. Um, but what's interesting is we had this conversation uh, actually today. We were it, it was actually sunset. We were on, it was on the golf course. And uh, my friend looked at me. He's like, can you believe that this like kind of haze that we're seeing is because of the fires that are going on in California? Yeah. How crazy is that? Yeah. I um, The other morning I woke up and we're typically up around 6 a.m. because my wife tries to get to work early and, you know, we're up getting the kids ready, bring the kids downstairs, start feeding them breakfast. And, you know, my my backyard um, faces to the east and that obviously that's where the sun rises. So, you know, I started, I, I saw like this orangish light right over the horizon and my son looks at it. He's like, daddy, what is that? I was like, Oh, that, that that's the moon going down. And then like, I look a few minutes later and it's higher in the sky and I'm like, why is the moon rising? That makes absolutely no sense whatsoever. And then it dawned on me. I'm like, Holy shit, that's the sun. Why is it orange? It makes no sense whatsoever. And then literally within like an hour or so, I get like some headline that pops up on my phone about the, about the, the, the smoke from the wildfires from the West that have traveled all the way to the East coast of the United States that is really obscuring the sun. And it's, it's been kind of, it's been interesting too, because I noticed this last week, like it seems to be unseasonably cool this time of year. I mean, yeah, September, New England, you know, once you get towards the end, maybe you're like in the, in the mid to low seventies and you know, you get that nice fall feel, maybe high sixties. Um, in the morning waking up, it's been pretty cold typically like it is in October. And I'm like, what the hell is going on? Why is it so, why is it so chilly in the morning? It just doesn't make any sense. 
and then the whole thing with the you know the smoke blocking out the sun and stuff like that i'm like holy shit is this like is this is like a a, a very a very small scale of what an ice age is like i guess yeah uh, isn't that like that that's very it's interesting perspective yeah when the sun can't get through yeah it's 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 very very odd to 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 see this not that yeah. you can smell but at the same the time no you can't but at the same time i mean i know september is always uh, i made the joke we made the joke about this last week you know it's it's, it's september it's chilly in the morning mm-hmm. around noon you want to wear shorts and then yeah the sun starts to set and you're wearing a winter jacket and mittens again yeah exactly but it, ju- it just seemed yeah. unseasonably cool yeah, uh, I mean, I, I mean, I I remember playing football in high school, and in September, like we're we're dying of heat on the on the football field, and now it's like in the morning. I'm like, wow, it's pretty chilly. It's crazy. Yeah, I mean, I'm not a meteorologist, but <laughs> oh, me neither. <laughs> but I mean, I I do remember September being a little chilly in the morning, and then and then warmer in the afternoon. But nonetheless, I mean, it's just an eerie feeling, you know. I mean, yeah. today was a day where you definitely should have seen the sun. And mm-hmm. it didn't happen because it's just, I mean, there's no, you could look up and see that there's no clouds in the sky. Yeah. But then. Yeah. And yeah, it was hazy. Yeah. It's just that haze. And then, you know, when you do see a cloud, you see that there's a cloud there because it's a yeah. little bit darker. It's, it's the most eerie feeling ever. I mean, I, I, I hope California gets some rain soon and the amount of fires that there are, it's like 30 something. It's not just one or two that main fires. I mean, California itself is burning. And the thing is, is that with these fires now, I mean, because of the power grid, the fire gets to the power grid. And next thing you know, you have more fires because the power grid is being destroyed. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Um, and it's not just California, it's California, Oregon, Oregon. And- yeah in washington washington so yeah that are, that are, it's just it's it's nuts it really is it's crazy so i don't know I, yeah. I i think they just need to become a desert i guess <laughs> so our western coast is burning and our cities are also burning good thing i live in a, in a suburb east in, coast east on the east coast, coast suburb yeah i'm sure i'm sure an asteroid will land in my backyard tomorrow it's only a matter of time where do you think the aliens are going to land? Uh, that's a good question. Probably your backyard. Possibly, it's big enough. I think for one of those ships, we'll see how uh, we'll see how uh, how that how that works out. Um, nice. Speaking of the of the fires in the West Coast, so years ago, um, not years ago, I don't know, maybe like five years ago, went out to uh, to San Francisco, with my wife, and uh, you know we were hanging out in San Francisco, never been there, so decided to go for for a few days, and then we drove out to Napa Valley and hung out there for about a day or so. Last day we were there, we we went to Sonoma Valley. We went to a couple wineries. Last one we went to was the was the Francis Ford Coppola Winery. And I'm sure as most people are aware, Francis Ford Coppola was the director of The Godfather and a few other fairly famous movies back in the day. Great winery, by the way. If you, if, if anybody ever gets a chance to go out there, I highly recommend it. I mean, Napa Valley is just amazing altogether. Um, but we were there, and our what we had planned was that we were going to drive to Seattle after that. Um, so going from San Francisco or Sonoma Valley, if you will, which is about an hour and a half north of, of San Francisco or so, roughly speaking, um, we decided to drive to Seattle after that. And by the way, I do not recommend that you spend three hours at a winery and then decide to drive up the entire West, uh, West coast of the United States after that. No, no, it's, not... it's a bad idea. Yeah. Very bad. It's a idea. lot of cliffs. 
a lot of cliffs and um especially when you drive through like the wet, the, the redwood forest um uh, yeah it's like literally the middle of the day you could drive through the forest and it seems like it's at night like they there's a sign once you enter the forest basically tells you to put your headlights on because the trees literally block out all sunlight whatsoever mm, well, um, now the smoke is yeah but interestingly enough, as we were as we started driving up, we actually got diverted literally five hours out of the way because of wildfires at that time. Wow. So it was just it was crazy. So we should have gotten there probably at around two or three in the morning and we ended up getting there at like eight o'clock in the morning and we were absolutely exhausted. <laughs> yeah. You know what the scary thing is though, is after all this, you know, there's gonna be they're going to get out of this eventually. There's going to be some rain. They finally get a wet season. You know, it's going to rain. But you know what else is going to happen when the rain comes? The landslides. Landslides. Oh. Mudslides, man. There's going to be tons of them. Yeah. Because all the, the, all, the, all the foliage is gone. So Yeah. And all the hills that they have, too. Yeah. Yeah. So it's, yeah, not, not exactly a good situation. They're but not going to be out of the woods for some time. No. No, I, I think they're going to start the next ice age, unfortunately. California? Yeah, we're going to have a glacier come all the way down from Alaska. And just park next to it, and then that's going to expand <laughs> from West to East. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and then, uh, and then uh, Yellowstone is going, to, is going to finally blow its top, and we're going to get eight feet of ash over here in Connecticut. Yellowstone's closed right now because of the smoke. I saw an article about that. God. Did you see that picture that was uh, – it was the Golden Gate Bridge, and there was the fires on both sides. Yeah, that was yeah. pretty eerie. That was that was a wake up call. Yeah, there, there's a, a baseball game at one of the stadiums, and it, I, yeah, I don't San know, San Francisco it was Giants. Giants. What was it? Yeah. yeah, it just and like you look at the sky, and it was it's literally orange. red. Yeah. yeah, just just crazy, very 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 insane. Yeah. But um, I mean, speaking of weird things, you talked about the aliens really quick. So apparently, there's a new documentary coming out on uh, on UFOs, October sixth, called The Phenomenon. We just learned about it today. Um, so very interesting. What channel is that on? Uh, I, I don't think it's coming out on a particular streaming service. I think it's going to be available for download maybe on YouTube or a couple okay. other services. I don't know any, any, any other details beyond that. But uh, interestingly enough, they have some fairly high-profile former government officials on it. So um, uh, Senator, Senator Harry Reid, who was the, the oh, Senate wow. majority leader for the Democrats. So yeah. apparently he was heavily involved in this particular program to, that, that the government had called ATIP uh, to investigate uh, UFOs that have come in close contact with, um, with, um, with uh, naval fighter groups, either on the East or West Coast on multiple occasions. Isn't the um, timing of this hilarious? I, I mean, really? It, it could be any, like, because it's just like, all right, you guys are processing the fires in California, um, socially injustice, um, the country's on fire. Um, there's this whole COVID thing. Hey, um, there's something else we got to tell you. Yeah. We're not alone. <laughs> we're not alone. <laughs> it's like, it's, it's like the poor kid who has a really bad day at school, failed a couple tests, girlfriend left him. Got his ass kicked on the football field. Goes home. His parents tell him that he's that he's adopted. Yeah, <laughs> that's a bad day. Actually, you know, it's, it, it's a happy ending. It's a happy ending because in the end, he realizes that he could have been left alone, but instead, somebody loved him. So what happens? Those people adopted him. So you're saying the aliens are going to come adopt us? We have to be adopted by the aliens. There's no other way. Well, it's either adopt or abduct. <laughs> Pick one. Some already have been, apparently. It, it, some should be. 
like permanently permanently gone but yeah. un- with, with our luck they'll fucking send them back yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> all right man i got nothing else for this week well, how about you any other roads you want to take a trip down now, just wanted to to give a shout out to to my wife. It was her fortieth birthday yesterday. Yeah, I let somebody so, know, and it wasn't her. Yeah, several times. <laughs> yeah, so uh, so for for the audience, uh, interestingly enough, so uh, so Ocho decides to send a, a text to include me and my wife to tell. It wasn't her, good intentions. Oh, it was, it was good intentions, um, and I, I think she still hasn't gotten the text. Uh, so he used her old telephone number. And ended up sending the text to some random person. <laughs> <laughs> and that's her laughing in the background. But what, it's not even just, what did, the, what did the text say? That's the, the best part is the, is the wording. Of the uh, let's, let, let's, let's bring that up. Let's see if we can find it. It was just something in regards to somebody being an old hag. And uh <laughs> Here it is. Uh, oh, don't don't worry. But we'll we'll tell you about that one. So here's the text. Happy birthday, Gwen! You old hag. Welcome to forty with the rest of us. Love you. And again, it's to me and some random person who used to, who has my my wife's old number. So I decided to text and tell him, hey, that's the wrong number. She changed her number. So what does he do? He sends a text to me and what would have been my wife. <laughs> the same, same number. number. He says, "Hey, Gwen." Happy birthday, you beautiful woman. Already wasted the old hag on someone else. <laughs> so there's somebody that has these two. Like, why do they keep texting me this? Yeah. At least I'm beautiful now. Yeah. Why, why do they keep calling me an old hag? <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Yeah. So for her birthday, I, I, got her, I got her Prosecco, since she likes to drink that on occasion. And I made her a creme brulee cheesecake. Yeah, did you sear the top? I did. I seared it with a torch. The only way you could have it, right? Oh, absolutely. Sprinkle yeah, so some it, sugar on it. Yeah. Is there a special torch or do you just use the same one that you sweated your, uh, <laughs> your copper pipes with? So I have an acetylene torch. Um, I just bring it into the kitchen and I just, no, I'm just totally kidding. <laughs> no, so there, there's a little, like a little kitchen torch you could get. So you fill it with butane and then you, you can use it for whatever you, you got to do. I mean, I, I, sounds I like a cigar lighter. It's a it's a big cigar lighter is pretty much what it is. But I, I was fearful that I was going to run out of, of butane because of all the sugar that I had on it. I thought I'd have to pull out the, a can of WD-40 and, and, and put a lighter to it and use that instead. But luckily enough, the uh, the butane lasted the uh, the entire to the entire surface of the cake. That is that's good. Yeah. What would have awesome. happened if you ran out? Would you have the, like an old old spray paint and in, in the lighter? Yeah. <laughs> you just torch it that way. Yeah, I, I, right. I think every guy on the face of the earth has done that. Oh, absolutely! It's a rite of passage. Oh, without a doubt. Mm. So I don't think any of our listeners give a shit about much more of this creme brulee torching stuff. <laughs> I don't know. You never know. But you know what? A story just like uh, what happened when I was trying to wish your wife a, a well uh, birthday, which once again, on even on the air, happy birthday, Gwen. Um, there was a, a friend of mine who I was within. I had this picture, inappropriate, of course. And he's, he's next to me, but I wanted to just see his reaction when he got it. So I sent it to him, right? So I'm waiting a couple of minutes. And... <laughs> He didn't get it. So I asked, I was like, hey, did you, uh, 
you get what I sent you? And he looked at me. He's like, no, what did you send? I was like, no, I, I sent you whatever. I sent you a picture of this, this, this Asian woman with really big breasts. <laughs> so mammary glands. Yes. Mammary Otters. glands. Stars. Star tits. <laughs> Star tits. <laughs> I sent you this picture. And he, he's like, oh. And I was like, what do you mean, oh? He's like, oh, I got a new number. Oh. <laughs> I mean, that's not to say that somebody else was immediately given the message. Like, nobody, nobody texted me back and said, like, I don't know who Gwen is, but she should be happy that you're so adamant about wishing her a well birthday. Like, and I never got a, a text back with, from somebody saying, hey, thank you for the picture of the Asian with yeah. the, the, somebody threw some Ds on him. <laughs> Yeah, you know, I, I've gotten random texts like that before, like with somebody kind of saying something um, not offensive, but kind of like joking or kind of like busting balls about something. And I would just play along with it and just reply just just to fuck with them. So th- those are those are probably some of the best things that you could ever have happen to you, to be quite honest. It is pretty funny. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, folks, that note. this is all we have for this week's episode of Ocho and the Hizzab. I hope you got something out of the educational portion of it. Um, I know yeah. I did. Um, Absolutely. When I found out that that he was going to be a guest, I was really looking forward to it because I really wanted to get a teacher's perspective about how they're approaching the whole thing. So I hope you got something out of that. I know I did. And yeah. anybody with any questions, feel free to always email us at Ocho and the Civ at yahoo.com. So. Absolutely. Sip. Ocho. Peace. Peace out.